Welcome to Dramatic Pause, being recorded on the ancestral and unceded territory of the Musqueam, tsleil and Squamish nations at the Firehall Arts Centre in what is now called Downtown Vancouver. My name is Donna Spencer, artistic producer at the Firehall and festival producer of the Dancing on the Edge Festival. On March 16, 2020, all live performing arts centres, galleries, rehearsal and dance studios were closed due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Recently, galleries and museums have been allowed to reopen and theater and dance classes have resumed. The film industry is set to resume in August and movie theaters will reopen soon. But what about the performing arts venues and the live theaters? Most remain closed with only a few, fire hall included, planning to do performances for audiences of less than 50. This closure due to COVID-19 has created, created a very long, dramatic pause, which had, has affected the earned incomes of countless numbers of artists, creative workers, arts administrative and production staffs. And in turn, it has affected the health and well-being of countless audience members and patrons who enjoy and believe strongly in the value of the live performing arts. During this dramatic pause, I've been having conversations with artists and arts makers about how they and their colleagues, and in turn our city, country, and the world is being changed by the pandemic. Today's guest on podcast, and sitting at the opposite end of the table in our little fire hall podcast studio that has been designed for physically distanced podcast recordings, is an amazing dancer, performer, choreographer, and community activist, Zine Kwan. Welcome, Zine. How are you doing today? Hi, Donna. I'm doing reasonably well, thank you. How are you? I'm pretty good. What have you been up to since uh, you've been put into this period of isolation? Oh, it feels like it's been a year, even though it's only been a few months. And with every new week and every new stage and all the new information, that comes out, and in particular with everything happening in the world. Uh, it feels like every day and every week I'm up to about four different things, and um, I'm strangely busy in a time when <laughs> there's not that much concrete activity. Well, I know one of the first things that you started to do, which I thought was fabulous, was you were actually delivering books from your partner's bookstores to anybody that wanted to order them because uh, there was a need. People wanted to read. And so you came up with this idea, which I thought was fantastic. Did a lot of people subscribe to that? A lot of people did. It wasn't my idea. So that's the Paper Hound Bookshop. Uh, Rodney Clark, my partner, and Kim Cook are the owners. They're a small independent bookshop in downtown Vancouver, and neither of them drive, and they cycle everywhere anyways. So they started receiving orders and because they eventually closed their doors to walk in business and people of course wanted their books delivered and so they were cycling and so I just, at that point, that was very early on, I didn't have anything to do and I tagged along with Rodney a few times for a bike ride and then I decided that I could help and let my friends know. So yeah, I delivered quite a few books as far as, oh my gosh, like close to New Westminster I think. But, you know, Rodney rides out to Deep Cove, and so does Kim. And I think that volume of delivery has slowed down now, but I think they felt very supported in that. And a lot of dance artists actually ordered books to have delivered. When I saw that happening, it just was a big reminder that 
not only were we in, being encouraged to stay at home, which I think was needed at that time, but we were also being deprived of going to the library or going to anything that actually stimulated our minds. So we were pushed towards looking at everything on television. Mm -hmm. And I think that was a big, uh, had big impact on, on those who are performers like yourself. I mean, you're an amazing performer and you give when you're on stage so much out to the audience and the audience gives back to you that that loss of that connection must have been very hard. I think the last time I performed was February at Sawdust Collector, and I have had to reflect on what it is that I miss most about creative practice, and I think for a lot of dance artists, they miss dancing. Um, I don't know how much I miss dancing, but I, I miss that exchange, um, that invisible cord or channel between myself as a performer and strangers and friends in the audience. I miss the precarity of that. I miss the uncertainty of that. I miss the danger of it. I miss the comfort of it, the control, the lack of control. And so I'm actually really looking forward to performing with Olivia Davis Davies um, in, a week time, in a week's time in the courtyard. And just rehearsing with her once at a socially distanced kind of way, it felt really strange, even after three months. Um, of having that moment of performance with a choreographer watching, having a witness. And I think the good thing about that is it allows me to continue the question about what the value of that witness is and what I'm looking for as a performer. Is it, yeah, I think it, 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 it loads that question with some more facets. Well, it does because it's not uh, when you're, first of all, I should just mention that we're going forward with the Dancing on the Edge Festival in a very different way this year. It's uh, a festival that we've put a lot of uh, work into having work screened online, but we're also doing these five performances for audiences under th 30, uh, audiences of 30 or less. And in Olivia's case, it's for 20 people. But again, it's with the, it's a piece that has is it five artists? I think it's five artists in it. Five, no, one, two, three, four, five. I think six. Oh, that's performers. right. Sorry, six. I'm getting it confused with the other piece that we have. Um, and and normally those people would be connecting possibly with hand touch or whatever. There would be some kind of bodily contact. And so what she's had to do as the choreographer is kind of blow that apart and make sure that everybody is spatially safe. And then we are doing the job of trying to make sure that the audience is safe. So it's an interesting um, construction that we're trying to create. And for dance, it, it dance, unless it's a solo piece, you're generally touching your other performer on stage in some way. That, that would be accurate, would it not? Yeah. So I'm really looking forward to seeing how the live performances are constructed and also how you relate to your other, the other performers on stage with you and what kind of energy transfers between you and them and then you and them and the audience. Well, I mean, in that particular case, Olivia has been very, very gracious about all of our concerns individually about safety as performers. For myself, I said to her early on that my participation was contingent on not being um, in the performance 
on the performance stage at the same time as any of my colleagues. And part of that was around physical distancing, but also just psychically, I don't think I'm ready right now to provide proximal physical care. I feel ready to be on the sides watching and offering support, but actually that kind of live interaction that happens without touch is a kind of touch that I feel like I need time to re-enter into when actual touch is safe because there's not that much of a line for me between the invisible touch between performers on stage and the real touch. So personally, I just am not even ready to do that yet. And so. do you think that that, I mean, this is sort of stepping outside of dance, but do you think that that is something that's going to have an effect on all of us as we go forward? I mean, I know now people, of course, that used to hug, we can't hug anymore, so we're sort of bowing or acknowledging or whatever, but everybody is building a, a, a broader um, uh, cocoon, or if you will, around them, and, and I think that will impact how we integrate with other people for years to come. Mm -hmm. I think it's a whole, it'll, it's a, it'll be a different kind of body language mm -hmm. two years from now when we, when we are standing in a room yeah. with others than it will be, than it has been in the past. Yeah, like when I listen to you offer that, it makes me think of the proverbial fourth wall that we think of as performers and audiences and how in my encounters with people, well, I always do this thing where I wrap my arms around this invisible space to give them a hug, but I also feel this thing happening when I run into close friends or people that I don't know that well. Like I feel this kind of elation happening in my body and as I've said to few people, I kind of feel my heart jumping up to my brain but there's this new navigation of so there are words that express how happy I am to see somebody um, but I feel that it's going to be a time of new learning because there is this consciousness of the energy between us that we so often um, make firm through a handshake through a hug through a touch on the shoulder and being able to read that energy and express it in a volume that it transmits. Like it is a little bit, it reminds me a little bit of how we deal with performing as well. And it's co so it could be really beautiful. Like, you know, bowing is such a beautiful thing. Like my dad does that all the time. Um, I often wish I could bow instead of shake hands and now I can do that. <laughs> well, and these are things that may, um, some of the choices that uh, different cultures globally have made over the years in terms of how they acknowledge respect for one another, this may allow us to actually broaden our horizons and, and, and think about what the actual action of bowing or shaking a hand, what, what was that about? What was that meant to say to someone? So maybe, We'll be questioning that and coming forward with a new understanding of what it really does mean to bow mm -hmm. as opposed to, uh, oh, I'm just going to do that because mm -hmm. that's what I'm culturally supposed to do. Right. Yeah. Um, I think we're going to go back a bit to the beginning and um, when we met and, and uh, start to talk about that and your connection to the fire hall and to Dancing on the Edge. I mean, when you walked in the other day, it was sort of, you said that it was really um, a powerful emotional thing because you've had such a long history of coming and doing your work and sharing your work here, both through Dancing on the Edge Festival and the fire hall. And I remember, I think, um, the first time I started to, to see your work, you were dancing, and you were dancing with a number of people who've 
either gone on to be choreographers or retired and changed their changed what they do with their lives. And at that point, uh, you were you you your name was Jean Kwan. And I remember because I went back and looked at some of the dancing on the edge um, old brochures, that at some point you decided that you were felt powerful or whatever, and, and you went back to your birth name. And I'd just like to talk about that a bit, because I, we're going to move into talking about a number of things that have come up in the community as a result of COVID-19. Um, is that all right for yeah, us to go to that place? For sure. Um, although I have to say, as I was listening to you talk, my memory just traveled to the lobby of the Fire Hall Art Center the first time that I saw Elvin perform. I remember being in the Alvin audience. Alvin Tolentino. Yeah, yeah, Alvin Tolentino. Um, I remember this was after I had reverted to my name, Zine, I think, but very young dancer still. I remember seeing him dance and standing up and giving him a standing ovation and then afterwards begging him if I could please work with him in his work. And I did the same thing with Lee Soufay she was doing her solo, the triptych. And so, yeah, just to say that suddenly my memory went down, like went back 18 years to that, or I don't know, 25 Maybe years? Maybe more than that. I don't know how many years. Um, but the festival's yeah. 30 years old, over 30 years yeah. old, so 32 years old. So it goes back a ways. But you were very young, and I think you were, were you ballet trained when you no. started dancing? Fortunately not. <laughs> um, no, actually, so I, it's not that my name changed. I'm no, your name didn't change. It legally was legally, you had Jean a very Kwan, westernized yeah. name. Yeah, well, yeah. Jean is my English name, yeah. and then my Chinese name is uh, Zine Kwan. And strangely enough, it's not my legal name, but it's my name on my birth certificate, which I've lost from Hong Kong. Um, and I think I was a young dance student, younger dance student, about 19 at Main Dance Place under the excellent tutelage of Gisa Cole and Nikki Follows. And there was something about kind of experiencing for the first time what it meant to be expressive and the agency of that, that one day I just decided I wanted people, I asked people to start calling me Zine. And I will always remember that Barbara Bourget was probably the first person who heard it and started me calling, started calling me that name. and. And even though people pronounce it differently than my family would in, in, in Chinese, it just felt right. And I've never, I think that that was a, a point of becoming, and I feel like I've been becoming zine ever since then. That sounds really corny. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's a very yeah. beautiful name, and it just seemed like that was one of the things that you that I, I felt that you must have made a choice about because... Yeah. Also, using the word name Zine is also a choice. Yeah. So Jean or Zine, there, there's yeah. a choice around both of those. And sometimes, I, so I wondered, because we've been having a lot of discussions about uh, culture and racism and, and things that are going on within our world of the performing arts uh, and the world as a whole, obviously, I just wondered if that was something that, that um, you felt you needed to do to be who you were. And it sounds to me like that is something that has colored your work or that was a choice that came about because... Yeah, I think it. I think as is a lot with me, things are often precognitive. You know, one feels a desire, an inclination, an impulse 
whether it's creative or a choice like a name, um, and then it's in the time following that the cognition of the value and the reasons for doing something become etched or defined, right? Like, I think. And how would your family say zine? That it would be zine. Zine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so you go up on the. One. Yeah, yeah, because Chinese is a four tonal language, yeah. so it's very particular. But I'm not, I'm not particular about it. Like some people call me zing, and I'm like, that's fine. So well, I think it's a beautiful name. So <laughs> I'm glad you decided to make it part of yourself again. Yeah. My, it's um, coined by my father, and it means I'm often embarrassed to say it because it's so nice. Um, it means daughter with the essence of a beautiful smile. So something to aspire to, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think your father nailed it, perhaps, because you do have a beautiful smile. So he must have seen that very early on and uh, honored you that way. Um, all right, so then you uh, continued to, you've been continuing to create work. You performed for many years. What was your very first piece that you choreographed? Oh, wow. The very first thing that I quote unquote choreographed um, was an installation. So I started choreographing very late in my career. Mm -hmm. I've been dancing for 33, 34 years, and I only started creating seven years ago. And just prior to my first piece for stage, I made an installation called Throwing Coins, Squeezing Soy, which I did by myself and with Annie Cooper. And um, we made soy milk and did I Ching Chinese fortune telling, which is something that I learned from my father. And then actually I remember bringing it to you and we did it outside in the courtyard for... What was that? Was it for BC Buds? BC it might have been Buds. for BC Buds, yeah. the, the Spring Arts Fair. So that yeah. was the first thing that I actually created, I think, um, in terms of having any form or structure and hiring a dancer. Um, I actually think it would be a fun thing to revisit. Um, and then my first piece for stage was The Neck to Fall, which was a solo dedicated to Amelia Utkush, which after being performed about seven times across the country, you then presented here at Dancing on the Edge four years ago? Yeah, I think it was four years Something ago. Something like that. Yeah. 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 So. And then, of course, we had the uh, Mars Hotel, which was a commission. That's right, with P.W. Bridgman yeah. and Peggy Lee's band uh, with Aram Bajakian and J.P. Carter, Handmade Blade and Noam Gagnon. And then that was the same bill that Kuan Yin was on, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. This is uh, uh, what I find uh, fascinating about your work is your use of... Um, props and costumes uh, in a way that enhances what you're doing, like last year's piece, um, which was um, the odd volume. You built all the props yourself, I believe, and you also, with Mars Hotel, you found those wonderful love balls that became the essence of the piece, in a way, um, and is that, do you have a um, a visual, are you a, a painter, a drawer, or is this, do you, what, do you see the, the props first, or do you see the movement first? What happens how, when you're creating a piece? What, what kind of stimulates the development of it? It is very visual. I'm definitely not a painter. I'm very particular about the visual elements that surround me. But then it's a process during creative process. And I remember a long time ago when I first started working with Robin Poitra, who works with a lot of objects. I actually think she has a school of working with objects that I've learned a little bit from. 
and I had just begun creating at that time, and I remember her saying to me that she works alone and in isolation quite often, and that it, an object would give her something to have a relationship with. And I think that all of my pieces, even if they eventually end up being with other dancers and live music, usually begin with me alone, and I get lonely, so I'm like, oh, there's a chair. Okay, so, but I want the chair to be like, so it's a, I think a search for relationship that actually is what begins the relationship with props. Um, or objects. Or objects, yeah, yeah objects. Um, and I guess there's a certain amount of amorphization of them as well, where there's something to talk to, something to bounce off of, to rest on. And a lot of choreography takes a long time to develop. And I think a lot of uh, audience members, and myself included, as I sit back, I, I wonder how many steps in the process <laughs> there really are. And a bad, bad uh, use of steps. But um, in terms of uh, there's always studies that are created. You go into the studio and you would create a study or you would reserve some material. I'm not saying you specifically, but I've certainly heard from choreographers that that's what they do. And finally, within the studio, there's something that emerges and I'm um, that leads them possibly in a totally different direction from where they set out from. So how often does that happen for you when you when you were when you were commissioned to do the Mars Hotel? For example, did you have a thought when you went into the studio as to how that was going to unfold, or did that unfold after a few uh, um, few uh, sessions in the studio, and, and then all of a sudden you got this brilliant idea? Uh, I don't think I ever got a brilliant idea, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, often I'm attracted to things. I'm attracted to people. I'm attracted to sounds. I was. For whatever reason, I well, for many reasons, I wanted to work with Noam. Um, sometimes it's the energy of things and people, but in terms of process, I am actually really poorly prepared. I just go into the room. I might bring something with me or uh, some music or some writing. Um, and it's funny if I think about how the first thing I created, I just didn't believe I could make anything. And now, after a very short time, I'm at a point where... I just go in and I know that some, my imagination is so ridiculously active, something is gonna happen. And I, my process is, and any dancer will tell you, really infuriating because I begin with one idea and by the time a piece is finally mounted, we've probably ditched about a thousand ideas. And um, I actually work through the details and I will try to finesse each idea and then ditch it. And then that's how we get to the next thing. Um, I don't know well, if that answers your question. No, it, well, it does because I don't think people, uh, and certainly the development of contemporary dance is a totally different process than working from a narrative, a, a narrative story as, as we so often see in, in traditional ballet. And even to a degree in some cases with what was called modern dance. But I think um, the idea that the uh, there that there might be a concept in the in the mind, but that the concept might totally shift, yeah. uh, or even get thrown out at the at some point, and the concept may change depending on yeah. who or what you're playing with, whether it's yeah. an object or a series of yeah. dancers. So when you're looking for dancers, when you're creating group work, and you're about to start a group work, is that correct? Almost correct. I was going to be about to start a group work, but because of COVID, I'm going to create a series of solos instead. Um, 
But the question was looking for dancers. Yeah, and when you yeah. when you uh, when you're choosing who you're going to work with, I mean, obviously you choose people that you have a tremendous amount of respect for, and can you can do the physical part of it. But I, I'm sure there's also certain kinds of dancers that you're looking for, depending on what kind of piece you're doing. Well, you know, because I'm not a my work isn't really it's not dependent on the invention of movement so much. Mm -hmm. So, but it is very dependent on the people. And more often than not, what's created is I'll be working on an idea and then my colleague in the room will slide down the wall and sigh. And then that's what I want in the work. <laughs> Those are the things that attract me actually is kind of the way that people are within themselves in a room at any given moment in time seems to be a microcosm of their humanity and that being a microcosm of a greater humanity and that realness really, really attracts me. And then from there, how to contextualize it or stylize it. And I do, of course, start with content. And I think I'm a little bit um, old school in that I'm interested in meaning-based work. Um, I respect people who are not interested in that, but I usually begin with there's a meaning, there's something that I want to explore. Um, or to mutate, and then choosing dancers will somehow have to do with how they relate to that. So the next piece, Made in Voyage, um, which is going to be a series of solos, is uh, about the performer's grandmothers. So it was important to me in inviting dancers to have a range of people. I specifically wanted to have a majority of artists of color this time, and that's actually become an increasing um, value for me to do that, uh, in part because I wanted a variety of stories um, without appropriating anything. Um, so sometimes it's related to the meaning, but often, I mean, there's just so many beautiful artists out there. And sometimes, like, also just learning from people, I'm like, oh, like that person is so involved as an activist in the community or, you know, is also a painter or a writer, like just learning from people by bringing them into a process or offering that. It's a way, it's a way to educate myself and to educate my work, I think, yeah. So do you think of yourself as someone who is uh, uh, using contemporary dance or performance um, to tell stories? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, it seems that that's what I like to do, like, and it's it's tricky because it's not very fashionable, but I think that actually dance is in the tradition of storytelling. It just has altered in so many beautiful ways, right? And stories, a story is many, many things. Well, I've had many choreographers tell me that they don't want to explain to me what it is they're doing if I can't understand it. Um, that's well I've had several of them tell me that if I can't understand it that's fine I can take whatever it is that they're offering and interpret it however I want and right. it's not been like it's not been confrontational when that's been yeah. said it's been more about you uh, you don't need to um, interpret the work in the way I may I have attend I may have attended intended it interpreted as you feel it yeah yeah but what I think um, we're talking about here is that you do base your work on content and content tends to come from story. 
The stories think. are fascinating. Yeah. Like the stories of my own grandmothers or just in interviewing some of these dancers, like literally my jaw just drops. Like life is truly stranger than fiction, right? And, um, and that's not to say that the stories will be told literally, but there's something about that, that gem of a life lived and lived experience that matters to me and is meaningful to me. Um, it's not what the work becomes necessarily, but it's somewhere that that fascinates me. Well, and I, 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 I the odd volume was a fascinate that which was the solo work that you did last year, came from a place of your past, did it not? Yeah. 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 So it was a sharing of your. You were allowing us to witness a little piece of your experience. Yeah. Yeah. Influenced by others as well. I yeah. mean, I, I don't know if it was all just your story, but... Well, it, it actually began... I thought I was going to do a piece that was inspired by Rebecca Solnit's book, uh, Breaking the Silence and just Unsilencing Oppression, because for a while I was awakening my inner feminist, and so I was reading a lot of feminist authors, and in the process of doing that, what surfaced was stories from my childhood. Um, part of that was that I was at the Moberly creating, and um, that's the area where my family was when I was a child. And then all these stories and memories came up of racist experiences that I had as a child. And so that's where I went with it, very uncomfortably. Um, and they're not just small parts of me that I think I shared through that piece. They're formative experiences that I shared. And they weren't all about racialization. Some of them were just about the experience of being an immigrant, sort of. There was a story I told about how my sister didn't join us in Canada until she, until I was about seven years old. and But realizing that, of course, it's not possible for me to be a feminist without being a feminist of color. It's not possible for me to be a person of color without the fact that I identify as a woman. So all these things really intersect, right? And then now in the world, like just the question of how as a human being and an artist, I'm complicit in so much of the systemic inequity that happens. And like one of the great things, well, one, of, one of the opportunities that the pandemic provides for me is to really examine what my daily practices are. Um, going to the grocery store or, um, you know, I'm thinking I want to do land acknowledgement in all of my rehearsals now, not just for performances. I want to make space to talk about the lives that matter and just asking a lot of questions about creating a space for things to be visibly in and invisibly present in the choices that I make as an artist. And like, that's a gift to have that time to do that, you know. I uh, find it, um, as you were talking about how you were uh, um, discovered when you were working at Moberly, that this is this, things that you had kept quiet, or not quiet, that's not quite what you said, but things that you were felt some shame for, or yeah. things that you felt um, uh, sh you shouldn't share. Um, and as you were saying that, I was thinking about, okay, if I was Jean, and I, my background was white, would I have felt the same way if I'd been treated uh, with disdain or um, 
as less, or would I have created that work? Would I have been? Would I have ever? Would I have ever explored those emotions if I'd been treated badly or bullied or whatever? I would have probably been happy to do that, or I probably would have gone forward. But I wouldn't have gone forward with. I would have just expected that people would understand. So I think one of the things that we're going to move into talking about is why. What is it about? those, and I present certainly as a white woman, what is it about those white um, boundaries that we have created that have, have pushed people's stories uh, so into the background and discounted them so badly that right now we have a situation where um, people are feeling and taking action against anyone of Asian heritage because they're blaming, I think, COVID on, on Wuhan, which is not really the case. I mean, yes, that may be where it started, but I don't know that it was intentional. And if it was, well, we probably don't really want to know that. Um, so I'm, I'm cu not curious. I know that this has been going on. The fire hall is located in very close to Chinatown. And I wonder what people feel they gain from actually accusing um, Asian Canadians, Canadian, Canadians of Asian heritage for this um, pandemic. I mean, I guess there's not a question in that. It's just sort of like, what is it that we, what gives us the right to think that way? Or it's not a right. What gives us the, the what is it that makes that happen, that colonizing thing happen? Anyway. You don't have an answer for that, I'm sure, and I'm still searching for it myself. But um, please, if there's anything you want to share well, on that. Uh, I don't have an answer for that at all. There's two things that come to my mind. Um, so, I mean, we're all super aware that the pandemic has made more explicitly visible the inequities and sort of in the in the arc of where I sit, we began, or I began with responding to hearing in the news about um, racial violence directed at East Asian people. And then now we're at a place where in the news all the time, it's about indigenous lives and black lives and the horrific violence um, that has been going on forever and ever. So a lot of the question, it's hard for me to even think about w the racism I experience as an Asian person anymore because I'm looking at the racism that I embody that perpetuates um, oppression of black and indigenous lives. And then, you know, Hiromoto Ida wrote this beautiful article and he talks about honorary whiteness and I'm having to examine all of my honorary whiteness and the privilege I have. and. So whereas it might be a bit of a hot topic, I don't, I don't, I don't even, I don't know how to situate myself except for to keep asking questions and to try to being willing to fail and to acknowledge where I fail in, um, you know, because up until three days ago I was calling it BIPOC and now realizing it should be IBPOC and like there's so many things. Um, I've created this little space to pivot my project in and I had an urge to create two little, I found two Ikea frames kicking around to create two little signs 
that just say Indigenous Lives Matter and Black Lives Matter. And the space is a shopfront space where I'm going to be creating and also selling work of other artists. And I decided for my window display, this is what I wanted to have on my shelf. And it just seems so obvious to do that. And I realized this is all part of the precognitive process of trying something in caring, right? And that it was a creative process for me to create these things and put them in the window. And then I realized, oh, this isn't just for people walking by to see. This is for me when I enter that space to remember that black lives matter and that indigenous lives matter. And for, so I don't know if I make any sense. Um, there's just so much to think about right now. Well, I'm thinking particularly about um, when the Chinese Cultural Center right. was defaced. And at that point, uh, there was also, there'd recently been some attacks on yeah. elders, yeah, uh, Asian punching. elders. Yeah. Um, and there was that sort of pushback coming from someone uh, against the, the Chinese uh, uh, cultural center. And so you decided to do something about that. Yeah. And I'm, uh, and I don't know what it was, but you felt you needed to take ownership and 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 do something and you did yeah. um, and created a performance there um, do you want to could you share that yeah. that sort of impetus or what you did with us yeah for sure and again that would be a really strong example of creative process being very spontaneous and that things shift because it really began with you know, as I said, at that time, there was a lot of information about people being punched on the bus, and I had just read about the cultural center being defaced with graffiti, and it was Asian Heritage Month, and we'd all been sitting at home doing, not interacting with people for about a month, two months, so it actually began with, I thought, well, it's Asian Heritage Month, wouldn't it be great for East Asian people to be visible in a way, live, not just on video, that is really positive and enforcing of our power. And so I invited um, some other East Asian artists to go and dance in a park with me on a Friday afternoon, I think it was. It was Kage, a drummer, Lee Soufei, dance artist, Sammy Chen, came out. Um, I think it was just the three of us that day. Leslie Komori was there briefly. Um, and we danced, and it was a really bizarre experience. We hadn't been in the company of other people. It was in a park. Um, and then afterwards, the next day, I thought, oh, well, let's do this again. It's still Asian Heritage Month. And I thought, well, what better place than to do it at the cultural center where this graffiti had happened? And then that just, all of a sudden, this little idea, because of the events that happened afterwards, became something that a lot of people knew about, which I think was good. So again, it's just like the tiniest little seed of a response for me has... Um, like I feel that as a human being, I'm more or less inept at responding to politically, but as an artist, there's potency because when there's a positive creative action or an inclusive creative action and an open creative action, any number of things can happen that are not about what I thought of, but about what happens afterwards. So the next day I went down to the Chinese Cultural Center and I was reconnoitering. I met with the director there. He welcomed us to come the following day. And then of course, as people know, who've heard this story, as I was leaving, I was verbally assaulted by somebody who told me to go back to where I came from, etc. 
Um, but it was a gift, really. Um, and he, he was a person of color. He was not a white man. Um, and so that just made me think even more and more about just the interweaving of and the meeting of where we have power and where we have where we are suffering. Um, well, as an artist, you took you didn't say I'm going to go down there and I'm going to create a piece that's going to do this. What happened was you went to the you went to the park because you needed to express exactly something that came out of you, and then you brought colleagues along who felt the same thing. So it, it's just a, it's a fabulous il illustration of how um, our creative impetus often will take us to places that will heal yeah. or yeah. stimulate conversations amongst those who witness it. Yeah. Uh, and not always positive ones, I would imagine. I mean, I, 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 when you were dancing in the park, I, uh, and you're talking about dancing with some beautiful dancers, uh, fabulous movers. Uh, what was the reaction of those around you? Did they stop and look? Did anybody question what you were doing? Uh, I don't think anybody did. We, I mean, we were very, we were fairly discreet, but there were a lot of people in the park that day. I think that um, somebody's partner had come to video and he got somebody said please don't take any photographs of me and then when we did it at the cultural center I decided because we were invited to do it originally we were going to uh, dance outside the sidewalk and I was joined by Sammy Chan again Paul Wong was along um, Leslie Komori taiko artist Annie Lin taiko artist Rianne Savelnis Kelly McInnes Cheng Shen Wei dropped by uh, and Sophia Wolf also dropped by to video we decided to do it in the courtyard and it was quite beautiful because there were all these uh, the Chinese astrological signs were in a circle, which were basically two meters apart. So we began there and we had no idea what we were going to do. And it was kind of vacuous because we weren't performing for anybody. A few people walked by because we didn't, right. suddenly I had total right. anxiety that all these people were going to come down. It was like at the last minute, don't come, whatever you do. Um, but something happened that was, um, I felt that we changed the space somehow, and I felt the space inside me changed somehow. But then after that, all these interviews started. People like CBC wanted to do all these interviews, which was great. But then I became really confused and about why I would be doing these interviews, because the thing I wanted to do was to dance. Right. Not to talk about this thing. And to be an activist is not what I do. I'm an artist, right? And actually, Soufé helped me to come up with that. And then the most recent time somebody requested an interview, she was really great, a woman of color from Global News. And I said, unless in that two-minute platform I can do a call to action related to... And this was before... Um, the Black Lives Uprising had started, I just said, I can't do it because there's an amount of what happens with media that is sensationalizing experiences. And it's not actually empowering to sensationalize an experience for me personally. Um, so it's become a big question, like what is the line between art and activism and activism and sensationalization? Like, it's, it's not clear to me. It's a big learning process. Well, 
I think, I mean, I've heard you say that you're not an activist, but I also know that when there were some challenges around BC Arts Council and funding right. for the arts, <laughs> that actually you created a performance. Uh, That's right. And uh, people joined you. That's and right. I believe it was at the corner of... At Jean Cafe on yes. Kingsway in Maine. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And so even though you may not think of yourself as an activist, the, you are doing activism work through your art. Um, and I always say to everybody, I think every performance piece has a politic around it, regardless yeah. of, of whether that's an intention or not. But Yeah. Um, well, I guess my art is a crutch for activism. Unlike so many, <laughs> unlike so many of my, um, I don't know, younger, so many of my colleagues right now, who have been incredibly active, like at Tent City, Crab Park, and, you know, spending the night there. Um, it's so inspiring. And, like, really just being there in body. Um, I, don't, I don't think I have quite the personal resources to do that work. So doing it creatively is... It provides a sort of hope and optimism, and it feels like... Yeah, it's per perhaps not very well, ambitious, but it's... Uh, well, I think there's lots of different ways to do activism. I mean, uh, you know, protest is one of them. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, broadening your own experience so you understand those the experience of those that you're active being active an activist for. Yeah. But I think also your life history, your experience um, that you bring into your art, those things that you, that you, that you have... Uh, actually, as I said, experienced, um, do affect what you do in your art. I mean, it, not everybody has to be on the platform yeah. shaking their fist yeah. to make change. Yeah. And sometimes one could, I don't know how one would measure it, but uh, sometimes seeing a powerful uh, creative moment that actually focuses on a, a, a need that needs to be addressed will influence people much more than somebody walking down the street with a sign. I mean, they're both very valid, mm -hmm. obviously, but I think we as artists need to use our tools that we have in the best way we can to encourage positive change. Yeah. And that's what I guess I see you doing. Well, I think, thank you. I think the thing I learned in the last few months, you know, because we talk about systemic inequities, specifically racism right now, um, and I just really learned how it's not just systemic, it's personal, right? Um, and I embody racism um, in many ways, and so I really feel for myself the best way to begin is with my own actions, and so happens that my own set of actions are related to some extent to dance. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the personal, uh, I, I mean, we're all, uh, I think it's, I think we all need to own up to the fact that our, we have personal biases, um, biases, which in many cases are racist. Yeah. And we also have training uh, or a way of living um, that has encouraged uh, a certain kind of racism that we're not even aware of. Exactly, yeah. So it is a big learning experience. And I think the COVID situation having us have to isolate or sit at home or not being able to pursue the life skill things that we've done to yeah. block us thinking about those things is uh, actually a very positive thing. It's really good to have to sit back and look at yourself and think about whether or not 
you are exp uh, um, displaying things that are harmful to others yeah. and how you can live your best life, they say. Yeah. Um, all right, I'd like to talk about your work with your dad and what, uh, what uh, brought that to the fore, which is a piece that we will be showing uh, a clip of uh, as part of Dancing on the Edge. So I guess there's been this undercurrent in all of my work around my culture. And I think a, a friend of mine helped me to identify that as a yearning for pieces of that culture to come into my work. And so my father, Kwan Li Hoon, Li Hoon Kwan, has been a Tai Chi artist for a long time. And we have a very intense father-daughter relationship. And um, I should speak for myself. I barely tolerate him quite often. Um, he's a very intense human being, not unlike myself. And can <laughs> I only, laugh. You're quite intense. Yeah. <laughs> I can only, you know, in real life, I can only handle a few, little bit of time with him before I just go crazy and lose all the goodness in my heart. So I thought it would be good to create a dance piece with him. <laughs> Inspired by the Kuan Yin, who is the Buddhist, Chinese Buddhist Adva of compassion, because I realized I needed to grow some compassion and some patience for one of the people I care most about in the world. And, um, yeah. So. Did you, did, how, how did this, did you say, hey, dad, uh, I want to do yeah, this? Yeah, well, and then, <laughs> yeah, so... We did. I asked him, and he was keen. But throughout the process, we worked for about four months together. We had Deanna Peters there as our rehearsal director, or I like to call babysitter. <laughs> she was break wonderful up the fights? No. <laughs> because we would we would be screaming at each other in the room, or whatever, or he would leave, or I would leave. But we spent more time together in four months creating that piece than we have in my entire adult life with him, and probably even in my child hood life and um so the piece is inspired by the Kuan Yin the Buddhist Adva Compassion and he is my father is a scholar of different Chinese philosophies including of Sanskrit Buddhist texts so he recites or recited in the piece the um it's a a mantra about the emptiness nature of being which I think is particularly appropriate right now to share again, because um, I think we've all been experiencing the emptiness nature of our beings, of our identities, as things are stripped away from us and having to look at what is at the core of underneath all of that. And then also because my father is now 80 years old, he was 78 when he danced it here at the fire hall in 2017. He's not a professional dancer and he is an elder and, um, so that's meaningful to me to have that out there um, right now. Yeah, so that's what that piece was. So it's amazing because we did it here, we did it again, and we forgot all our steps when we did it again. We remembered them all here when we did them at the fire hall. Um, so, yeah, it's great to be able just to pull some excerpts from video and share them with people. Well, it must have been quite um, in the process of rehearsing that because... Uh, tai Chi is a very uh, structured kind of work um, in terms of the movements. 
Um, and, and so when you were trying to choreograph that to get any variance on those movements, was that a challenge? Well, no, because my father decided he wanted to do the water style, which is okay, a very yes. beautiful and yeah, difficult yeah, form. Yeah. Um, mind you, sometimes he would forget what happened next um, in that form, but it's in his body. What was really fascinating was so when he was dancing, that's what he was doing, and I tried to imitate him for like maybe a minute. It's impossible. It's so advanced, right? I don't right. have that knowledge. Um, but what was amazing was that we really choreographed the piece together, and like Deanna Peters was witness to it, like all of the ideas, like he's just like a crazy improviser. And I'm like, oh my God, this is where I get this from. Like he just had th these wild ideas. At one point he started like making animal sounds. I was like, okay, let's do that. But so what was interesting was kind of indoctrinating my father into contemporary art where that already existed in him. And he was sharing those impulses already. But then afterwards, he said, oh, we can't really do that, right? <laughs> so, yeah. But then he also used to be a, a ballroom dancer. So we also, he taught me how to jive. And we choreographed a jive thing together as well. So, yeah. yeah. No, it's a fab it was a fabulous piece. And I, I, I wondered when I watched it and uh, how that process had happened because I'm I mean, I studied Tai Chi with uh, Lee Soufei and, yeah. and David McIntyre for a while here, and I remember them going, no, that's not what you do. It has to be this way. And I thought, okay, how does that, how would that affect creating a contemporary dance piece, for sure? They're totally different things, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, and your father also participated in a, in, um, a project that Emmanuel Jota did last year here called, um, that was about bringing... Um, individuals who don't dance uh, into the world of dancers. And, and it was basically um, one dancer and one non-dancer. And your father participated in that as well, did he not? He did. That was a coup de pourvoir. Yeah. And we had headphones where the dancer was listening to music and then the other person ha was also listening to the same music. And we had something that we prepared. Um, and then the audience, one audience member was open to do whatever they wanted and so my dad participated as a dancer in that and um, again I wasn't very patient with him in the process but he and Emmanuel just hit it on like cats on a hot tin roof I don't know <laughs> they really got along <laughs> to hear to see right is that the translation uh, écoute pour voir listen to see listen to see yeah. and and we took that project and this is I'm circling back to your comment about elders yeah. and and why I feel this is so important to have this work in the festival this year is because somehow in our um well, in Canada, or in our Western civilization, we seem to have lost this respect for elders in a way that is is really detrimental to, and maybe it's because I'm getting older that I'm really recognizing this, but it's really detrimental to the health of our societies, the, the lack of respect in many cases. Now, in many cultures, that is not the case, but this piece was taken to Harrow Park, where where there were a lot of uh, in 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 care individuals, and that you danced with some of the Harrow Park people that may no longer be with us because of the lockdown mm -hmm. on care homes and how COVID has hit care homes. So that thinking about that is is rather 
very upsetting, um, but Emmanuel wanted to do that kind of work in care homes, and I think still does want to do that kind of work in care homes mm -hmm. because he has such respect for elders. So yeah. um, I've always thought of the Asian uh, culture, and this is the Asian culture, very broad. How many different cultures are within the Asian cultures? Thousands of them. Um, but I've always thought that there was a tremendous respect towards elders there, and and that we could learn from that as we can from the indigenous culture about their respect for elders. But I, I don't know if you have anything you want to say about that, but it was just something that um, I felt was really important to remind our Dancing on the Edge audiences about is that, yeah, that, that there is work and we need to be thinking about these things. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I, th I do recall you saying you were thinking about going down to Harrow Park to yeah, dance. Yeah, like in another of my, like I just always have these crazy ideas. And then, you know, I do some of them. I thought, well, maybe I could just go down. Because I remembered, I heard that um, there had been a few deaths at Harrow Park. And I remembered going with Emmanuel and his, all of us to dance. And so I thought maybe I could just go down there and dance outside a window. But I haven't yet realized that idea. But it is something to consider. Um but, you know, I think Emmanuel had been dancing at elders' homes doing that project for a long time before he brought it here. And honestly, when we did it, I remember saying to Emmanuel afterwards, I don't know if I can do another one of these because it was such a real experience um, of performance that I've never had in my life um, before. But now, if I could... I would like to, and I did send an email to Emmanuel and the others saying, wow, this is what we were doing last year. Yeah. We were at Harrow Park touching, dancing with these strangers who were elders. Um, well, we also, that it, that was also done at Granville Island right. and, yeah. and very different kind of int, um, connection. Yeah. Uh, because I'm sure you met all sorts of different kind of yeah. people who wanted well, to dance at Granville Island, but also... I just couldn't do that now. Yeah, yeah, we can't do that anymore. Yeah. And what you left, when when you left Harrow Park, what you left with those individuals that you danced with, is it, it must have been so powerful as well. Well, yeah, and what they left us with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that sharing of... Yeah. Wow. Well, you should be very proud of having done that and, and that connection to your, taking your father into that as well. That yeah. must have been fabulous. I think it was fabulous for some people. He was very, he's very brave. Right. Simultaneously brave and insecure, just like all of us whenever we perform, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's like that. Yeah. yeah. Yes, I think, uh, uh, I think anyone that's a performer has to be very brave um, because you don't know what's going to, what, what, the witness experience is going to offer you. Uh, are there other things you want to talk about today? Ooh, such as... I would like to talk about, yeah, how I've pivoted a creative project. I think I talked about... I've opened up a space. It's called Morrow, M-O-R-R-O-W, and it's on West Pender, uh, two stores down from the Paperhound Bookshop, which we talked about earlier, and... What happened was I was supposed to present a piece and begin work this August at the Shadbolt, thanks to Corey, and I'm still hoping that Corey and the Shadbolt will be able to perform the piece. It's called Maiden Voyage, and it's inspired by grandmother's stories um, sometime in the future. But when I realized we couldn't do it this August through October, I thought to myself, I'm not going to lay off five dancers 
right now and I'm not going to put it off. So I went looking for a space and I decided to rent a storefront so that people could watch us creating. So, but what I'm also doing at the space, because I realize it's such a privilege to be able to redirect resources, to have a space for my creative project for four months time is in the back, I'm going to have a little store and artists can, because it's zoned for retail, um, artists can sell the things they make. And Dance, specifically dance artists and musicians and people make so many things like there's at least 12 people now who are like oh yeah I make candles I make lip balm I make body oils oh yeah I have LPs I have some paintings I make masks it's amazing so yeah <laughs> well that sounds like a good thing to be doing yeah. now I also understand and you were one of the first choreographers to start looking at how uh uh, dancers can work together safely. So you you drafted some very uh, some protocols really early on, I believe that you shared with Kat. Is that not correct? Yeah, I drafted some protocols, not about working together, but just re-entering creative practice yeah. because I knew that I needed to begin with some very basic rules. Consider knowing that we all have really distinct creative practices, and I would be able to define for myself what those things were and. Some really basic things around COVID protocols, but mostly about including all my colleagues, even if I am the employer, I'm not their boss, um, that safety comes from each person and that together, and we've met since to talk about it. And yeah, we have these protocols that I drafted, and but it's really going to be a daily thing of, okay, where are you coming from today? Who have you been in contact with? Should, you know, what do we need to do today? Do you want to wear a mask? Should we, you know, so things that need to be done, but also like the emotional well-being of everybody in a time like that, being able to talk. And then also around all the things that are happening in the world right now that people are really invested in that. And for a lot of people, it's hard to even be in creative process when... All of this is... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 so a lot, like some good things to happen in terms of being more mindful. How do you think that dance, how do you think dance artists and choreographers are doing uh, uh, right now in, in terms of their emotional health? Well, I think it's a full gamut as always. I mean, and also BC is in such a different place than Ontario or Montreal or, and I mean, Quebec. Um, one thing I've reflected on is that as a dance artist, I've had a 34-year career. So not being able to go into the theater with these things that were kind of defining my identity as a art dance artist in the next two years, even though I'm sad to lose those opportunities, it's not quite as much of a loss for me because I've been able to do it. Like, Right. You know? But so, there's a lot of young artists who haven't or have very limited. Yeah, like... You know, what's happening with the MODA students who just, just graduated? Like, wh So I have a lot of compassion for that and just realizing for a lot of people, they really just need time to pause. And people are, I mean, I'm really impressed by how COVID careful people are. Um, well, I've also noticed, and again, back to the online uh, uh, Dancing on the Edge uh, event that we're doing, is that a lot of people are creating in isolation and posting on various Instagram or Facebook or yeah. um, uh, so there is that the and it tends to be the uh, more emerging artists that are doing a lot of that because 
they want to create yeah. and that yeah. they also have a connection online yeah. uh, with to online perhaps a little more than I do yeah uh, uh, probably a lot more than I do um, and senior artists as well because senior artists haven't really been thinking about creating digitally mind you I've seen some fabulous work online about isolation by some of the bigger companies that have the resources to go okay create something and we'll make it I'll work. Um, so there are there are people creating in isolation, but it's not quite the same connection. Mm -hmm. uh, the witnessing in online is very different from witnessing live. I mean, besides this opportunity to do Kuan Yin in a video format, I'm just generally not interested in, in generally not interested <laughs> in online dissemination. I, I mean, I'm willing to go there with the right opportunities, but that's why I'm pivoting this. I just want to do it live. Even if somebody's just watching from the window outside, I'd rather do it live. So. <laughs> well, and certainly storefront performances have been done before. It can yeah. be quite popular. Yeah. But a glass window is a little bit different than a television screen or an yeah. a, a iPod or yeah. an iPad. or a. Yeah. Well, my hope is that people can come in one audience member at a time come October. Yeah. Yeah. But that may or may not happen. So then I was like, oh, well, then maybe I don't really want to create a video. So maybe I could figure out how to afford to create a book instead. And have photographs and stories. So, yeah, there's... There's lots of possibilities. A lot of challenges and a lot of possibilities as a result, right? So I always ask this question before I wrap things up. If you had, if money was not an issue and you didn't have to write a whole bunch of grants to get it, what would you do as a creator? What would you be the first thing you'd want to do as a creator if you had whatever money you needed? Okay, this is going to sound awful. At the moment, I have the money that I need to do what I want to do. And I am so lucky to have some resources, project funding. Um, and I'm not really thinking beyond the next five months. Like, I'm going to work with five amazing dance artists in the next four months. Do you want to tell us who they are? Yes, Alexis Solveig Martin, Marissa Gold, Shion Sky Carter, Rianne Savelnis, and Zara Shahab. Oh, wow. I'm going to get to meet with each of these people every day and in a space that I've set up and that is ours and we're going to create something together. We may not get to disseminate it. We may get to, I mean, I couldn't, I really couldn't ask for more except for I'm wondering about the commissions for Dancing on the Edge next year. <laughs> <laughs> well, know. and of course, there will be a posting for everybody about yeah. uh, the COVID commissions that Dancing on the Edge is going to do and Firehall may also be doing some con uh, commissions but not in dance necessarily. Um, but I, I've been telling everybody, please don't start thinking that you have to tell a COVID story. That's not what this is about. Yeah. It's, they're just called commissions because we COVID commissions because we decided to do it well. Right. COVID-19 was uh, forcing us not to uh, give a full live festival this year. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much, Zine. This has been great. I hope it hasn't been too painful for you. No, it hasn't <laughs> been. It was, just, it was good to talk. It was really nice to talk. Yeah, thank you. And thank you to all those who are listening to our uh, uh, podcasts. Uh, I don't know how long this pause is going to go on, this dramatic pause, but we're going to be here as much as we can, talking with people who are doing work in the community, uh, bringing art to people, and hopefully helping uh, people heal and get through these days that are very uh, 
difficult and challenging and tend to be difficult and challenging for everyone, even though they seem to be more tip, uh, challenging for those who are on the margins of our society. So please, as we go forward, try to be aware of that and try to um, broaden your kindness because we need a lot of that now. I echo that, Donna Spencer. Dramatic Pause is recorded at the Firehall Art Centre in downtown Eastside, Vancouver. It is presented by our artistic producer Donna Spencer and produced by technical director Alastair Wallace. The Firehall Art Centre has been producing and presenting Canadian theatre and dance since 1982, and we couldn't do this without the help of our generous sponsors, benefactors and patrons. We'd like to thank the Canada Council for the Arts, Canadian Heritage, BC Arts Council, BC Gaming Commission and the City of Vancouver, as well as our season sponsors, the Georgia Strait and East Van Graphics, and especially our many generous individual donors. If you'd like to support Canadian theatre and artists by becoming a donor, you can visit our website www.firehallartcentre.ca. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those held by the Firehall Arts Centre, its employees or its supporting bodies.